Welcome to The Improver, the podcast that explores ideas in healthcare improvement and participatory change, hosted by Dr. Naeem Ahmed and Lara Mott. Hello and welcome to episode four of The Improver. I'm Lara, CEO and co-founder of Improve Well. I'm Naeem, clinical lead and co-founder of Improve Well. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Dominique Allwood to the show. Dominique is Deputy Director of Strategy and Improvement at Imperial College Healthcare and she is Assistant Director of Improvement at the Health Foundation. She was recently seconded to the NHS Nightingale Hospital London, where she was Medical Director for Nightingale 2. Dominique was also named one of HSJ's Rising Stars in 2015. She is a Darcy Fellow and is also a Prepare to Lead alumni. So Dom, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I wanted to start by saying I don't know out of you and Naeem who wears more hats at this stage but you certainly wear a few Um, and you've had a really interesting career journey to date so it would be great to start by hearing a little bit about what's brought you here today and all of the hats that you have worn and continue to wear. Yeah, sure. I, I like to chat a little bit about my juggling multiple um, plates, but I think hats is just as relevant as a metaphor. So I have a bit of a portfolio career. I'm not a typical medic or a typical manager or a typical healthcare leader, I guess. So my background is in medicine and I trained in public health, but I've had roles uh, including management consultancy and healthcare leadership and clinical management and have worked in a range of organisations including hospitals and commissioning organisations, think tanks, academic organisations, policy uh, and so have managed to gather I think quite a rich experience of working in healthcare and understanding healthcare from different perspectives and thinking about how best to deliver healthcare and so I'm really passionate about doing that across boundaries and spanning different ways of working and thinking so I think that that's mirrored in my style in which I've got these multiple roles of on the one hand working very much in practice in an NHS organisation part of my week and then on the other hand uh, contributing to national policy thought leadership and getting to see that pipeline that spans policy to practice is really exciting it's all got a common thread and a bit of a lens that relates to population health and improvement and patient and staff engagement Um, but I'm really keen that we as doctors particularly but clinical leaders find lots of different ways in which we can do our roles and if that means doing them across organizations across teams um, and with different lenses I think that provides a sort of richer way of working in many ways. That kind of clinical and bringing the clinical insight to um, leadership have you found this whole thing about going on to the going moving to the dark side I mean you hear it less and less now but what are the type of barriers and stuff that you've you faced and how have you overcome them yeah I did get uh, did get given that label a couple of times um, earlier on in my career so that, I guess the first one was choosing to go into public health which is a very hands-off um, specialty it's not clinical and so people were occasionally sort of questioning me on my choices about were you trained as a doctor why don't you want to see patients anymore but I think my experience of working in the NHS has definitely been over the last 10 or 15 years that managers and clinicians have really worked well together in many roles that I've had so it hasn't been as recent I've heard people sort of saying going over to the dark side and I also think there's more 
understanding now that doctors in particular want to get experience in management, leadership, quality mm. improvement, policy, safety, or um, entrepreneurship, you know, wider roles outside of clinical medicine. So I think that dark side phrase is less used now. And, I, and I'm glad about that because it kind of polarizes things and makes you think you have to choose either or. And I don't think that should be the case. You know, healthcare management is a particular profession in and of itself. People train often through training schemes, graduate management training scheme and other things. And I think it's um, often underestimated as a set of skills and an approach. So um, some of the managers earlier on that I worked with were a little bit sceptical about potentially what I could add as a clinician. And I think they were right to be. And I learned a lot about working with them and they learned to trust me and think about what I could bring as a clinician into those managerial posts. But I think when you're coming in new to a, a professionalism where people have already worked for a long time, built up expertise, it's natural that they're going to think, well, who are you and what have you got to offer? But I've, you know, overwhelmingly been very fortunate to work with very, very good managers and um, clinicians alike and have some really strong relationships across both of those professions. I think for me, particularly, Dominique, because you, you um, have led the way in terms of this clinician leadership like hybrid and we've we've looked at you and we've looked at a few other you know Emma Stanton, Claire Lima there's a there's a whole group of you that have really um set the pace and inspired a lot of us to tread this path do you think that it is something that you would recommend to others and obviously you know for me as a ethnic minority British Bangladeshi I I have faced some challenges but for you as a, a female leader and, and this is what we were talking about um, to Lara like there are some unique kind of challenges that you faced I mean is there anything that you could share with others that are considering it but also some of these challenges that you faced and how you've navigated them I guess well I guess the first thing to say is I'm really flattered to be um, held up with some absolute uh, amazing role models you know people like Claire Lima and Emma and others really did forge the way of managing to balance developing clinical careers with going into leadership and in fact set up a lot of the schemes um, that have evolved into what many people now recognise as the um, Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management training scheme. They, they were CMO fellows before that and prepared to lead and other schemes that developed doctors and gave people um, opportunities to go and formalise their leadership and management um, experience in a way that I don't think was possible a number of years ago. So very flattering to be held up in that bucket. And I absolutely looked to them when I was pursuing a career in, in this space. Um, I guess for me, one of the things was having that formal training and um, education in leadership and understanding what it means to be a leader and that very important question of what's it like to be on the receiving end of me and it's a question I ask myself often and ask of others to give me feedback and that was very formative for me through my training and I think um, those things have really stood with me around leadership but also understanding how you can support colleagues and, and others to have the same opportunities so I, I supervise um, fellows from the medical uh, faculty of medical leadership scheme uh, public health trainees and I do mentoring and coaching because I was afforded a lot of opportunities from having some really great mentors coaches supervisors and role models and I think it's really important uh, in our careers to be able to do that pass it on medicine is built on that kind of apprenticeship model and being able to support people in positions in their earlier development of their careers is really important so I've been fortunate to have that support and then be able to do the same for others which is great I guess in terms of uh, being a woman from a BAME background and 
being female if I'm if I'm really honest it wasn't something I particularly considered early in my career I just assumed people are treated equally I was very Mm. naive about the way in which people got jobs got placements got picked for things I didn't really understand that anything happened other than uh, this was just a process that that went on um, in a very fair and transparent way but as I've gone through uh, understanding more about the world and how things work not just in uh, hospital and uh, medical roles but more widely it's become obvious that people do have disadvantage and, and not everyone's afforded the same opportunities and people are treated differently and I guess actually I noticed it more as I got more senior in my career and Particularly, I'm a a woman that looks a little bit younger, which is fortunate, I guess, for me. But uh, I have been mistaken for being an administrative assistant in rooms where I'm actually Mm. there to chair meetings or, you know, expert advisory groups just because I'm a woman and I look younger. And so, you know, that I I think that's very unfortunate and um, have called it out in a way that is trying to be kind and considerate to people who are potentially have those biases I think it's really important that people do understand that that these things aren't always fair or equal and I've been really lucky that I've had some opportunities that have been specifically designed to help um, forge careers for people who are um, in uh, positions like people who are women or BME where often underrepresented at senior leadership positions so it's definitely something that I've become much more attuned to and um hope that I've become a little bit more vocal on and support colleagues on because I have to say I was very naive in the past about that um, not being at play it's something that's very important and I I definitely want to um, make sure that we have that at the forefront of our minds and work and with the lens of Covid now and equality and equity is so important um, in terms of everything we do in terms of our patients and our staff. Dom, what you said resonates with me personally so much. I mean, I started my career in in finance, which was a very male dominated environment. I often got asked to make the tea in every meeting until one day I just you know didn't do it. I also remember at one point in my career where they were doing a you know a reorg and and my job title came into question. I had quite a senior job title at the time and and I was asked well actually could you be an assistant instead and whilst that's a fantastic role that was not my role um, and so I really had to fight hard to sort of keep my my title in that particular job. So I, I share your passion in, in wanting to empower um, women to fulfill their potential in the workplace. I've personally worked with Um, excellent female role models and and some not so excellent and I think from what you say you know improvements are being made there are increasingly more women in in non-exec and exec roles in the NHS but is is there anything more that organizations can do to show their support for encouraging women to progress into more senior roles across health and care? So I'm a a member of uh, a few women's networks one within my organization that's been um particularly vocal and active recently with the sad events of um, Sarah Everard. And also I'm a member of um, the, the, the National Women's Network. And uh, we had a really great event for International Women's Day recently where we uh, had lots of speakers talking at sessions where we're bringing an angle in of gender that really made people think and actually start to understand that gender has an interplay in a lot of spaces and places that you wouldn't ordinarily think. And I think it's about making these issues visible. It's about people Mm. having an opportunity to have a safe space to talk about them. It's about having 
peers who have similar experiences and bringing collective power to people to feel empowered, Laura, I like the word that you use there, it is about empowerment and it's about advocacy mm. and it's about changing the narrative. So um, I've, I've found having opportunities to speak about issues and have some kind of solidarity with other women and networks and connections to see what people are doing in practice to really make a difference has been really helpful to me. The other big part when we talk about um, inequality uh, was the the leadership dom that you've provided in terms of if we just set the context with covid and particularly um the impact that covid has had and the disproportionate impact unfortunately on communities which you dom have known about and written about and i've heard you speak about the inequalities in in society and how that impacts everything that we do and people's life chances etc you you speak about anchor institutions and uh, we're hearing more and more about anchor institutions and i just wondered given what we've been through and what we're going through with covid um if you could just um talk to us about anchor institutions and why why you think they're so important yeah, of course. And it's a pet subject and hobby horse. So you've unleashed me now. So you'll have to rein me in <laughs> if I start getting too passionate. I think, uh, uh, thank you. It's kind of you to say that it's been something I've been championing. Part of the reason I was really passionate about going into public health as a specialty was this focus on um, equity and inequalities. And it's been something that's driven my work and thinking for a long time. And um, particularly that kind of connection with understanding what drives those gaps in health outcomes and access to healthcare, etc., and understanding that people's context and what we call the social determinants of health, where people live, their education, their employment, their income, etc., are things that all impact um, on their lives and um, have contributions to make towards um, equity and equality. So those links have been very well known and many people have spoken about them, including, you know, heroes of mine like uh, Professor Marmot and others. I guess what has been really interesting for me to see is that those things often feel quite far removed from clinicians and their day-to-day practice where they see sick patients in a clinic. They recognise those contexts are going on for people, but they don't always know what they can do to help influence them. So we talk a lot about the difference between biology and biography. So the clinicians tend to focus on the biology of the patient and their illness and disease. And they take a social history about who do you live with? Do you smoke? What's your job? But they don't fully understand the sort of biographic nature of people's lives. And even if they did, they're looking more in the context of that that person's illness and disease and and potentially thinking, well, what can I do about this person who's got asthma, who's going back to a damp home um, every evening where that will just make those things worse. And I think what I found really interesting about the anchor institution notion is that this is a way in which organisations and individuals working in those organisations can really think about what role they play in improving Uh, people's health through the lens of social determinants of health and tackling inequalities. So anchor institutions are institutions that are usually public sector bodies, but not always. They've tended to be in the community for a long time. And by their very nature, they're often the very biggest employer of people locally, or they have a huge amount of assets in terms of their physical buildings, or they have huge purchasing and procurement power. And And so by their nature, they are anchored in that community. And this is about how do you leverage that type of activity to have more of a positive impact on on the local community and people's lives through who you might employ, 
how you might use the built environment, the physical space, what you do through your environmental activity, the organisations that you choose to partner with and how you work with your local community. And I think that that's been really powerful for many organisations to think, actually, if we change or adapt the way in which we're employing people or target particular groups in the community, we can actually influence their health in a much greater way, probably than we'll ever manage to patching people up through our, um, you know, A&E, etc. And there are, you know, individuals who work in those organisations can do the very same thing through the lens of sustainability or thinking um, in terms of when they're about to put out a contract for a goods or service, what's the social value here? So people in their everyday roles can think about their, uh, their responsibility to the social determinants of health and inequalities, but it, does, it shouldn't become a tick box exercise. People shouldn't just think, oh, well, if I do this employment scheme or go and give these opportunities to medical students locally, then I've automatically ticked the box. You know, the, the, the consultant who gets the, the, the school that they used to go to and their friends and family in for work experience is not necessarily going to make a huge impact on tackling inequalities. But if we are purposeful about tackling the schools in which people who rarely go to university don't think of medicine or the health system as a career for them, have pupils whose English is not their first language or pupils who have disabilities or issues they might need to overcome that would prevent them often getting jobs and employment or training. That will be the way in which we really tackle inequalities. So it's about understanding the issue, purposefully going and tackling a gap that you see and then thinking about how you're going to try and close it rather than just thinking these interventions will automatically impact on inequalities and I think there's a there's a really strong lesson in that for improvement for your population health whatever you're doing you have to be purposeful and intentional about your, what you're doing otherwise there's just this element of magical thinking oh if we're an anchor or we do an improvement project over there it will automatically lead to these changes mm. and unless we're being purposeful about inequalities a bit like the conversation we just had before about women and ethnicity you've got to be really purposeful and intentional about what you're targeting to actually narrow that gap and make a difference are you optimistic because um you've mentioned marmot and we saw marmot's tenure tenure on um report i think there's a lot of pessimism about whether we can kind of make a dent on inequality what where, where do you stand on it because this is a societal problem right who's responsible we could say everyone's responsible but by saying that then no one you know we know the reality is that no one's responsible for it but what's your sense of optimism around us making a dent on inequalities so i i guess maybe i'm different to um some of my colleagues my public health colleagues who have um you know very uh, good understanding of how we might influence inequalities might take a much more systemic view and think it's very complicated with politics at play, social factors, policy, um, all sorts of things that need to influence to make really make a difference. But I've grown up and trained very much in healthcare and I'm, I'm very sort of um, active minded in terms of wanting to make things happen and think about what's in the sphere of my control and influence. And, I, you know, I work with clinicians on the ground and healthcare organisations, and I feel really optimistic that people can play roles and make a difference even within that context of knowing that there are political and policy decisions that will ultimately influence a lot of that. And I think COVID has brought a real watershed moment. We haven't had a time where we've talked about inequalities or seen the stark reality that these inequalities have thrown up more so than during COVID. So I think we've got a real opportunity to galvanise on people's appetite, interest, desire, urgency 
to do this stuff differently and better. And I think anchor institutions offer a potential way of being able to do that used in the right way. So um, how do we work and co-produce with communities? What are the best types of interventions and work with staff to do that? We've seen people have really come together during COVID, particularly in communities and how staff have looked after each other in ways that we wouldn't have expected. So what have been the assets that people have drawn on and how can we as organisations and people build on that to really help shape a future that we want to be part of? And you're, you're absolutely right. Mom at 10 years on is saying, you know, many stark things as are people talking about climate, you know, climate emergency and other things. But if we don't think in a, um, a way that we can achieve stuff, I think we'll end up getting paralysed with it all feeling too big and too complex and someone else's problem. So I'm all for... What's within your sphere of influence? What can you change right now, here today? And what can you do to influence that? So that might that might make me sound like a bit of a crusader, but I hope that that makes people feel like they have a role to play and can do something personally, because that's what I think it's about. What can we all do? And every little piece will add up. Yeah, it's an inspiring, it's an inspiring way to, to look at it, for sure. We, we hear about people saying, you know, not a national sickness service, we need a national health service, we need uh, people to start thinking about population health and uh, those important concepts that you have kind of discussed. So what do you think is really next for our health service and the way we're thinking about health? Do you think are the, I don't know, the next three big challenges, I guess, and three big opportunities. So we mentioned anchor institutions as one. What's in the top of your mind as, as being some risks and opportunities you think within the health service? So I think during COVID, it was really interesting. It was one of the first times that I saw healthcare be able to adapt and respond to the context in which it faced. So generally, we understand healthcare to be supply driven. By that, I mean, we have a certain number of resources and we expect the the um, demand in inverted commas, which is the patients and their needs to fit in with what we can offer. But when we look at COVID, we saw ICU bed surging. We saw mutual aid happening across London where people were moving resources around to respond to the needs of the population. And I think that that really shone a light onto the health service to think, we can be more responsive to the context in which we face. And there is some learning about how do we better understand the needs of our communities, uh, the public, before they even become patients. And then once they are patients, their needs and what demands they make on healthcare. And then how do we be more agile in the way that we supply that healthcare? That might be the way in which it's delivered virtually or through technology or the way in which we might be able to flex um, roles and people and spaces in order to live the healthcare in a different way and I think I'm really optimistic about that so becoming much more of a need-led healthcare system would be great and I think starting with the population is really important how do we understand what their health needs are and their context what does that mean then for their health and disease progress in future and where are they best placed to get that care and support and then the second thing I I would predictably say I guess which is what you would hear many people say is that you know integration is going to be really important and we're seeing a, a, a move much more towards that particularly in England but that's been the case in you know the devolved nations for a longer time where health and social care are coming together and different types of healthcare across a defined population to say what do people need and how are we going to deliver best on their needs and then a the final thing for me is this intersection of kind of 
method and thinking and approaches. So I think, you know, change is really important. And we've learned a lot through improvement using a healthcare lens around safety and patient experience and staff experience. And I think we've got a lot to think about how we bring some of those quality improvement methods now out to thinking about improving health and the social determinants of health and tackling inequalities. One of the key components of that which you've demonstrated in the nightingale is the use of technology and where do you see that as part of that package in terms of its need and use so i think technology is really important but it has to be attenuated with understanding what the benefits are of human interaction and technology is not just used in isolation it needs to be integrated into social systems about how we understand how technology is used in its multiple different formats and how we interpret the things that it's telling us and what we do as a result of that. And that is a classic sort of learning system. The two main things of a learning system really are kind of noticing and responding and and tech can really enable that. So things like apps can help you gather and collect data either actively or passively. Technology can be used for data analysis. It can be used for all sorts of things. So I'm, you know, I'm optimistic about the use of technology, but I, I'm cautious and anxious when I see people trying to hold it up as a bit of a panacea because actually Mm. healthcare and the system we work in, it's a social thing and care is about caring and we can't replace that. Um, But what we are thinking about is how do we use technology to help enable that and make things easier for staff, patients, communities, carers, et cetera. You've spoken about the community. Um, What about the workforce in terms of um, improvements and I guess challenges and opportunities for the workforce. Did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the, I mean, we've seen the workforce be such an important integral part of the COVID response. And there's been a huge amount of public support for key workers, which is absolutely right. Um, but we have to recognise the toll in which COVID has played on many people. Mm-hmm. The psychological impacts will be felt for a long time in the staff that were on those wards with that volume of people who were very sick dying um, and unwell and we need to think carefully about how we are going to support our best resource going forwards and often staff have not felt invested in and felt that they're doing a very difficult job so things that are symbolic of how do you care and provide culture of um, compassion and uh, be a, a good employer things like you know the staff canteen or rest spaces and things have been eroded often for good reason you know space is short people are starting to move into shift patterns resources aren't always there to do that but I think what Covid has really shown is that we absolutely need to prioritise staff welfare physical mental um, etc so that's one thing that I think is really important but I guess it's important to not think of staff as a homogenous group you know there's 360 odd careers in the NHS those people have very different needs from a careers perspective but also from a personal perspective people's lives outside of work they're set up the things that drive them and motivate them are exactly the same as our patients staff are our biggest community we need to think very much about their needs and be responsive to them so there's been many staff that have quite rightly had a lot of um, attention on them staff clinical staff working in ICU etc but there have been cleaners and porters who earn you know small wages for the work that they do who've been on a very sharp um trajectory through covid of bearing the brunt of that work and also doing it on a very low income with very challenging circumstances about their employment and so understanding what someone like that needs on a contract is very different to understanding what 
um, somebody in a clinical role might need. And so I think that piece about who is your community, who is your population, what are you trying to do with them and co-produce solutions that really work for them. And that, that lens of kind of inequalities comes back again, understanding some of those people who are often invisible and their voice is not heard. I mean, it's interesting, the staff survey came out recently from the NHS, but we have very little ability to be able to drill down to understand experience of people in different um, parts of the health system and the roles in which they provide. So looking forward, I think we need to get better at gathering insight and nuance. And, you know, we've we've talked a lot in the past about um, a learning health system, being able to gather staff insights about improvement, but that's not just about improving patient care, that's about improving their own working environment. And, and mm. tools like Improve Well are so integral and important to be able to do that, to empower people to say, what it is that isn't working for them and what could be better. So I think when we're thinking about improvement, it's about our staff as well as our patients. And, and people are very much moving in that direction now, but we've got a long way to go still. Certainly as someone still working clinically, what you've said really resonates. And uh, you're right. It's, it's really those staff members that, you know, that haven't had much of a voice, but like you said, are not just impacted because uh, of the jobs they have, but likely, as we've seen due COVID, they're probably their communities have been affected, their living areas have been affected, and we need to kind of um, take some action quite quickly on them. Dominique, it's been brilliant to chat. It's been, I think, you know, the the amount of information that you've given us has been um, amazing. How how we can distill your fantastic career in this short space of time. And uh, mm -hmm. we, we probably need to do a whole series just dedicated to you. I, we have a, uh, a part of our podcast where we talk about um, a small but mighty idea. I don't know, Lara, if you have that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, something that we think uh, is something that is a small action that could make a, a massive difference. From the perspective of a patient, interacting with frontline staff wearing personal protective equipment or PPE is a very different experience to what we're used to. It can feel daunting, it makes it harder to establish that human connection with those who are caring for you, particularly if you can't see their facial expression, for example. So we have seen lots of simple ideas where staff have pinned a photo of themselves smiling to their uniform or people have used masks with a clear mouthpiece which has also helped patients with hearing impediments, or they've used things like digital flashcards to assist with communication. So we'd like to highlight these small but mighty ideas that all aim to ease stress and anxiety for people at an already difficult time. Thank you both. Um, well, what an important small but mighty problem to think about. And I guess it's kind of a really nice thread that's pulled together lots of things that we've been talking about, thinking mm -hmm. about, um, people who have different needs and being very cognizant of those and I think understanding staff and patients with disabilities that impact the way in which they are able to undertake their roles is so important to be able to support them and I think that suggestion is really important and it's very pertinent and has resonated with me across my roles so I think thinking about the the different ways in which the PPE can work to help support people to be able to interact in ways that are meaningful and help include everyone is really important. And I, and I think not just through PPE, but you know, people who have 
been living in social isolation, who have had to distance from people in terms of physical distancing. All of those things have been really excluding for people. So it's a really important thing to be highlighted. Well, that's a, that's a perfect way for us to wrap up. Um, Dom, thank you so much. We will be watching your career developments with interest and uh, hope to feature you again in season two of The Improver to see how many more hats you've, uh, you've added to the collection. Delighted to come back anytime and thanks to you guys for being such good partners in the work that we've been doing to try and improve things for patients and staff, particularly um, through COVID. It's been amazing to work with you all. Thank you. Thanks, Dom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care. Bye. The Improver is a production of Improve Well Limited. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Dominique Allwood. To find out more about the Improve Well solution, visit improvewell.com. Subscribe to The Improver at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening.